Incoming transmission from an unknown source. It seems to be urgent. Patching them through. They're calling themselves the Holonet Marauders. Hey guys, welcome back to the Holonet Marauders podcast. This is episode 13. And I'm joined by the usual two Bombad Jedi here, Matt and Jamie. <laughs> and we have another guest, um, our friend Jack. Hello. Who's also a pretty Bombad Jedi. So today we're back to continue our discussion about the High Republic and to finish talking about Charles Soule's Light of the Jedi, as we've now all finished the book. And I really, really can't wait to talk about this with you guys and finish this up because... Part two and three, I thought blew part one away, and I even loved part one, so that's kind of where we're at. Right, right. So just, it goes without saying, this is very, very spoiler-heavy for Light of the Jedi, so if you don't mind spoilers, this is the podcast for you. If you're waiting to finish the book yourself, um, don't listen to this episode yet, but listen to it when you finish, because we have a lot to talk about here. Definitely, definitely. A lot of stuff. (laughs) So I thought we could start with what I thought really made the book for me. And as always, it was the villain and the villains. So I thought, I thought the Nihil were amazing. Like going into when they're coming into this era, announcing it, they announced them as space Vikings. And I I didn't really know, you know, going from the usual Sith villains and going to the Vikings like this, I was like, how, how will that be? But, you know, we find out more, about what makes them so powerful and Martian Rowe and his family have the paths which we'll get into which I was kind of confused by at first but they do a good job explaining it but the Nihil are just so interesting and they're like something out of Mad Max they're always playing wreck punk and blasting music while they're fighting and uh, I just found them so interesting and the the way that they're structured was so cool you know they're all based off of like um, storm words so it's like uh, the storm is the the leader, I guess, of a group. Then the cloud, and then a strike, and then above that is the tempest, and then the eye of the storm, which is Martian Row. And I just thought that was like such a cool structure of um, a group of villains. Definitely, and I really liked. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead. I don't know if we wanted to go in order, um, but I really liked the detail at the end of the book when he's giving his speech and he brings up the galaxy map, and the galaxy map like starts yes. rotating and then turns into a storm. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, we are the storm. I thought that was, like... That was awesome. Yeah, yeah. that was a really cool uh, imagery. If only, you know, we got an actual imagery of it. But what are you going to do? Maybe they are day. interesting in comparison to the Republic at this time. You know, we have the... We are all the Republic. On one hand, you know, everyone's working for a common cause. And there's a great sense of community and helping your fellow uh, neighbor. Um, not always, you know, people are people, but compare them to the Nile where they're barely holding together, uh, three-way like, like hierarchy. I find it kind of interesting because they reminded me a lot of Belters in the Expanse series in that, in that universe, it's about 200 years or so from now. And, uh, a lot of the solar system is colonized. And there are a lot of people who live in the in-betweens of different uh, places where there are like stations or some moons have been colonized. And uh, there's a conflict that can, that happens where a lot of different Belter gangs all group together and uh, you know start working against the two inner planets, Mars and Earth. 
And I felt that was a lot similar to how you had these three different parts of the Nile. They work with the eye, but they're kind of each kind of there. There's a sense of you have to do this for everybody as well. But there's still that bit of selfishness in them. They're still kind of out for themselves, especially one out of the three. Yeah, I can definitely see that comparison, especially with the the belters in the Expanse series are more of like the they have a sense of being like left behind by the two larger you know worlds, Earth and Mars. They almost feel like they're they've been neglected and yeah. exploited, and I feel like that's also the same way with the Nile being kind of like the underclass rebelling against the more refined republics of you know the solar system slash galaxy, whichever. Uh, source you're working with but i can totally see that comparison plus the colony ships going out to the outer reaches reminded me a lot of um, in a later part where they start stretching out even past what we know and of known space and um you know like just like the the lawlessness of the frontier uh struck me as very similar to one of the books in the series as well i really love the idea that you know the outer rim is not as colonized um as we see, obviously, in the Skywalker saga. Uh, but it's still, you know, you still have a sense of there are these established worlds in the Outer Rim. So it's not like completely, you know, wild out there. It's not like pioneers just going out and discovering things. But you're, you still have a sense that this place is not fully structured yet. And the Republic still has a hard time gaining control of it. And, you know, we learn from the Skywalker saga that they really do never get control of the Outer Rim. They never really establish control of that area even with you know they open the starlight beacon at the end of the novel uh, and they have like a hopeful you know kind of feeling like yeah we're going to finally be able to unite the galaxy but that seems to never actually take place i thought it was speaking of which i thought it was just so cool to see how uncharted um you know the galaxy really is and there's just like a few like not a few but a small amount of hyperspace lanes and um nothing like we see in the Skywalker saga and the paths that Martian Rowe and the Night Hill have are, you know, if he had those maybe during the time of the sequel trilogy or, you know, the Mandalorian time, uh, when the Mandalorian takes place, uh, you know, those may, might not be as special. The way they travel about them is a little wacky, but, uh, you know, a lot more is charted in quote unquote modern Star Wars than, um, in the High Republic time. So that, that was really cool to see. Yeah, we were trying to figure out earlier what exactly the knowledge of the entire galaxy that the... Who are they? That the Nile have. It seems like they have the biggest overall like completed map of the entire galaxy at this point in time because the Republic seems to just have the core worlds mapped and everything that they've traveled via hyperspace to so some of the outer rim and they are actively looking to expand beyond which is why they're starting up the starlight beacon and trying to do more outposts like that and they know that there's more out there and they want to explore more however they're still not making it out there so with the Nile they definitely have the most complete map and they have that Ace of the hole with the Mary Santaka, like, Dope. like you said the you said the magic word. Wait a second. Wait a second. We need to talk about her. The Mary Santaka or Mary I mean, Santaka. The whole yeah, Santaka. Just going yeah. to hear more about them. Yeah. I mean, so like, like that means that hyperspace knowledge and mapping cartography it's privatized. It's not a publicly funded mm-hmm. uh, effort. So. Right. The Santecas could be sitting on way more than they sell. Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. You know, and it's very cool 
having read the Poe Dameron comics and obviously seen the first 10 minutes of The Force Awakens, uh, Laura Santeca, <laughs> the last of the Santeca clan, who's killed at the beginning of The Force Awakens. But in the Poe Dameron comics, they talk a lot about his fortune. You know, you know that he's like this rich guy who really never had, you know, to work in his life, kind of roamed the galaxy, discovering different, you know, force-based religions and, you know, architecture and, and uh, archaeology. It was the word I was looking for. Just to jump in really quick, we were watching an interview with uh, Charles Soule, and I believe it was um, Alex from Star Wars Explained. Uh, he interviewed Charles Soule, and Charles Soule talked about how Laura Santeca is, like, one of his all-time favorite characters that is, like, kind of, like, really underrated. Yeah. Because think about it as well, he's written about the Santecas at least three or so times because he yeah. did the Poe Dameron comics, he did the Rise of Kylo Ren in which Laura Santeca appears, and now he's talked about his ancestors in Light of the Jedi. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's just, you know, another one of those cool connections to the sequels that spans throughout the entire history that we have so far for, you know, current canon. I think it's really, it's a really cool connection. It was interesting to see the problem that was trying to be solved by Kevin Tarr. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, yeah. I want to talk trying, about that. Trying to uncover how to how to predict those and like the logistics of what he would need, the resources from that time. You know, I still there's been a lot of criticism that uh, the technology doesn't feel older, but I think there's definitely it's not as grand as we might want, but there's, you know, the lack of uh, Bacta, right, uh, which <laughs> I think you guys mentioned last mm -hmm. time. Um and uh, you know, this, the amount of droids needed yeah uh really speaks to the difference in well age. you and, and you know you mentioned that and i actually that's perfect for a point that i wanted to make which is i was talking to jamie and aj about this actually in the last podcast and we had to cut it out because it was in part two and i didn't realize it <laughs> kevin really invents the first hyperspace tracking you know we see that play such a huge pivotal role in the last jedi but when you look all the way back you know 200 years you have what was it like something like 50,000 droids? I forget the number. 30,000. Yeah, at least 30,000, I think. At least 30,000 droids in one location, right? Com making these inc incredible computations that, you know, just barely works. I mean, these droids are like overheating and, and exploding and shattering left and right. And um, what's his name? Uh, Elzar Man. Elzar Man has to start like a force storm oh, to like cool them down yeah. so that they don't like, you know, explode everywhere. The, the computational power of 30,000 droids in the High Republic, you know, then you travel 230-something some, years into the future, and you see, you know, this tiny little box that looks like a flux capacitor, you know, when, right. they, when they infiltrate the supremacy. It's the computational power of 30,000 High Republic droids in this one tiny little box. And I think that's such a cool um, kind of showcase of how the technology evolves from say you know 200 years to now i think that's another cool connection to connection to the sequels i'm gonna keep saying that <laughs> i thought that was such a crazy idea to make it uh soak them up because i'm like but they're gonna short circuit <laughs> that's right? what I, thought, then, yeah. I thought so too a very convenient line where it's like well i mean come on they're built for hard vacuum in all sorts of different conditions why wouldn't they be able <laughs> yeah. to handle a little rain i'm like Oh, I guess you got a point. I'm, there. I'm glad that, like, <laughs> every once in a while, there's like a few lines in the book where they just like toss like that clarifying thing in there, where it's like, "Oh, uh, Wet Bub said to Cassif that, oh, that was uh, Ariande was where we had that big incident," and everyone's like, "Oh God, we know what happened there, okay?" But like, it's oh, it's funny yeah. that they like straight up like said that a few times, both in um, the scene with all the droids and then with the Nile. 
Don't mention Wetbub. I can go on and you on. You want to talk about Wetbub? Wetbub, dude. Wetbub. We're just like go on for a while, dude. <laughs> I is he the first Gungan with a speaking role outside of the prequels that we've seen? He has to be. Possibly. Who, who else? He's definitely one that we could uh, possibly. <laughs> oh my goodness! I. Oh. It's strong, possibly that wet. Bub I want some is wet bub art. One. Somebody out there <laughs> make some wet bub art. One or two itty bitty RTPCs. But Matt, talk about talk about wet bub. What do you got to say about wet bub? A punk, a punk Gungan is such a cool concept. Punkkin. I need more of them. And you know, it's so. It makes me really sad. We were talking just last night about how cool Wetbub was, and I had finished, or I was, you know, very close to finishing the book, and obviously I knew Wetbub was dead, and I couldn't, I had to, you know, hold my tongue because I was just so depressed that Wetbub, my beautiful Wetbub, is gone. I know, you did a good job at hiding that because we just finished the book. Um, yeah, I can't believe you held on, on to here, that, so. like, for so yeah, long. Yeah, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't say anything. Yeah, there was, But yeah, it's, you know, like I said, somebody out there needs to make art. Because I need to see Wetbub with my own I need eyes. Action figures. I, think I need like action everybody. figures. I need official art, fan art. I don't care. Just make art for Wetbub. <laughs> it's coming. I would say that. I mean, like one of um one of the bigger artists that I follow who does a lot of unofficial art, uh, Jake Bartok. He's been doing a huge series of like medieval Star Wars characters, and they're incredible. But he recently released a huge spread of um, Jedi from the High Republic, and it is an unofficial piece, Ooh. but it's been picked up by a lot of the writers from the High Republic saying, hey, check out this art. We know it's unofficial, but it looks really, really cool. And so, like, that's, like, the only, like, really big piece I've seen so far. And, of course, you get, like, the occasional little, like, fan arts out there. It's been a lot of, like, Bell and Ember, in which I get so excited about that yeah. everyone loves <laughs> Ember so much. But I love Ember. I, I would hope that the more visuals and in general actual official merch will be coming that's like my biggest want out of all of this is just more visuals for everything in like in some cases like they drop different aliens that we're not really familiar with like we're familiar with gungans but but then we're not familiar with um the type of alien that porter angle is he's an ikrukian in which yeah yeah, in which that that only appeared in the poe comics right yeah, they're like uh, these like really pale people with these two, not horns, but bumps on their foreheads. And yeah. they have these like big black uh, looking eyes. The artwork that you mentioned drew Porter Engel. Um, and I think he looks really good. Yeah. I think that's exactly yeah. like what I would have pictured for him. I'm just trying to imagine what that nine egg soup tastes like. Oh, Ooh, the nine egg soup. But we, <laughs> but we don't know what the ninth egg was because he won't share that detail. <sighs> I'm so glad he survived. Uh, I was very worried he was, he was done for. Oh, yes. Porter Angle's Outpost Cooks. That's what it is. Oh, man. <laughs> man. I really respect him because he knew that he could do a lot more damage if he wanted to, but he just wanted to be able to still contribute instead of just hanging out, yeah. you know. Not actually, you know, just, just doing what a lot of Jedi feel like is their earned right. Definitely the kind of, like, person in which, like, they would get bored if they retired and would just, like, get a new job because they're bored. Um, so it it was good, like, seeing something like that, though, in which, like, he was almost, like, semi-retired, which he would be cooking for them. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm, like, I'm the cool old Jedi. But at the same time, he's, like, deflecting the, those minds, like, left and right. Like, that was, like, such an incredible scene to read. Just have, like, Bell and Lode and be like, whoa. Because they had like never seen it before, and it was just like really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. And I really liked, you know, he explains. Well, they explain for him, you know, kind of like what Jedi retirement is. I really like that concept. Mm-hmm. 
you know, where he decides to go to some outpost, you know, just to keep having some adventure and he ends up being the cook. And now he's like <laughs> making an adventure out of being a cook. Why not? Yeah. You're exactly. not going to make that nine egg stew at the uh, Jedi Elder home. Maybe you are. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> the old folks home. Back at the old folks oh. home. <laughs> Carry the old folks home. I wonder when they oh, yeah. start using that term. R4. Scrabble code 5 to chorus and care of the old folks home. So something... We didn't get to really talk about Elfrona in the last one, but I wanted to mention Elfrona and a connection to the Rise of Kylo Ren comic. Right. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Elfrona, the temple on Elfrona appears in the Rise of Kylo Ren comic. It's where Luke and Ben and Laura Santeca encounter the Knights of Ren for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he comes back later, uh, Kylo Ren comes back later and destroys the entire temple. Um, but it's really cool to have them like describe what the temple looks like in its heyday and then, you know, pulling out the comic and again looking 200 years later and saying like, wow, this is, you know, the same place that we actually saw active with Jedi, you know, doing things. And I thought that was a really cool little connection. They do that a lot. Just for clarification as well, it's not the temple, it's not Luke's temple. Elfrona is not Luke's temple, just for clarification, because there's two temples mentioned in the Rise of Kylo Ren comics, and so oh, right, visually, yeah, because yeah, you're like, oh, the temple got destroyed, and I'm like, it's not the one from the movie. No, um, just, it's another one. Yeah, just for <laughs> clarification. Kylo Ren comes back to find Ren's mask and then destroys that temple too. He's just he's just going on a you know, temple destruction. He's just going on a temple destruction. <laughs> and the Dagobah cave. Yeah, he just yeah. destroy everything. Who cares? Just... Another Charles Soule classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that I was really eager to talk about because it kind of shook up my understanding of the Force was this concept of being able to uh, float mm. and, right. uh, using the Force. Because right. I always felt that, okay, you could use it to jump really high. Um, you could use it to run really fast, as we saw in episode one. Uh, for like a second mm-hmm. I never mentioned <laughs> yeah. her again um, we now know that we can use the force to slow ourselves if we are really really good at it because it does seem to take some really precise concentration right and and that that kind of surprised me because I, I always thought that the effort that it would take to lift yourself up would be uh, like kind of like an infinite loop and it would kind of force like feedback in some way uh, that would cause a problem, but I'm open to it. We see Kanan break his fall a few times in Rebels, and in one of the Kylo Ren comics, he Snoke like threw him off a cliff, and he broke his fall. Right. So those are the two times we've seen it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I kind of like I like the idea of it's sort of a lost Jedi power, or that that they don't really do as much because we definitely don't see it in the prequels. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. It opens the door for Mace Windu. How do we know that, say, Anakin isn't using it to break his falls when he's jumping out of cars left and right on Coruscant, you know? True. I, f- I feel like it might be, like, in, um, something that they, like, don't even think twice about, but it was just a huge, like, um, development thing for Bell in this case because he does it three times, which is always, like, a good number for doing something in stories. But um, yeah. he does it three times in this in which uh, they have to jump out of the... They have to jump out of the vector on Hetzal, and Loden saves him. And then Loden pushes him off the cliff on Elfrona, <laughs> in which um, Indira saves him because he like gets distracted while he's doing it. And then when it's literally do or die, and he has to save the 
the Blythe child, uh, he does it because yeah. it's do or die. Yeah, it worked really well. It was a great it was a great mm-hmm. uh, arc for him and his character development. And I I definitely was like, okay, if he doesn't make it now, there's, yeah. there's no way out of this. <laughs> like, exactly. Well, the entire way that that like, section is like set up with like, oh, Loden is going to do his thing and Belle has to go do this other thing. And I'm like, oh, God, they're getting separated. This isn't good. I don't like when they get separated because I loved the Master Apprentice relationship with Belle and Loden. It's probably one of my favorite Master Apprentice relationships like of like ever um Absolutely. and and th- since quite gone and over pretty much yes. yeah and like aj was tying it to that like a little bit as well in which we're almost like convinced that like qui-gon and obi-wan were a massive inspiration for bell and loden because like it's but almost like better i dare say which is ooh. like ooh. <laughs> ooh. i hope i hope we get to see more of them because i was not happy with the cliffhanger oh. left ooh. at the end of yeah we can talk about that right now so <laughs> if I don't know anybody who hasn't read it and is watching this, you're absolutely crazy. You should be reading it. But if you haven't read it uh, at the end, um, so the Nihil take this mining family hostage and the dad is still captured. The rest of the family is freed. Actually, when Bell jumps out of the ship, he's mm-hmm. there. He's trying to rescue the, the girl of the family. Um, and at this point, Martian's uh, basically admitted that he orchestrated it all to entrap a Jedi. Right. Yes. Because that's he, what he so did. what happens is, um, great Loden Grapestorms gets captured by the Nile. Um, and first of all, I just want to talk about the scene where Martian Rowe ha- and uh, Lorna D are standing in the cargo hold or whatever, and um, Loden is captured, and the dad is just like lying unconscious. And Martian yeah. Rowe picks up his lightsaber and just slices the dad, just kills him. Ripper, oh, yeah. and Did and it was like, I, first of all, I was like devastated because I really want, I felt really bad for this family, and I wanted them all to be returned uh, safely. So I feel really bad that the dad had to be killed, especially so unceremoniously. This entire you know C plot of the story was to rescue the the family, and for that to you know fail, and for Loden to now just be in the hands of the Nile was really devastating. I mean, that was, again, just a very cool moment for Martian, for me at least. It shows the selflessness of the Jedi as well because they're, this family literally was no one. They are just a random family from Alderaan in which they settled on Elfrona just to rough it themselves and just have their own little farm. And they literally were no one important. And the Jedi still went out of their way to like save them and whatnot and save the entire family. And then Martian just brought it back to like real life being like oh these people are literally no one i don't care he just kills the guy and then yeah. meanwhile poor Loden's like literally like as restricted as like restricted can be like think like uh darth maul in season seven of the clone wars <laughs> but not in a box but just like all like linked up and whatnot and like no one can like he just oh my god just Loden. he used to watch his own lightsaber get bloody oh yeah surrounded by pain and it so you know it's pain. all revealed that martian you know this capture of this mining family was all just to get a jedi he didn't give you know two cares about the rest of the people he just cared about getting the jedi martian himself i mean just finding out how much of a schemer he was yeah um, you know he knew that all he has is um uh santeca what's her first name mari mari santeca mari yes yeah, see all he has is mari santeca without her he has nothing he doesn't have the paths and so for him to orchestrate it in a way that makes him the spiritual figurehead of the of the Nile uh, and the Tempests are now serving him and listening to him instead of being an equal member. Uh, it, just like the power dynamic, the way he shifts it and played uh, that the third guy, the really arrogant one. Kassiv. 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 Kassiv, yes. 
Oh, the way he played Kosovo, I was like, yes, please. Yes. This guy is so bad news. Get him out and of here. And his plan, <laughs> the the revelation at the end that his plan is to capture a Jedi, and now he's just captured a bunch of random people and is just consistently torturing them uh, in cells like surrounding that Jedi so that he'll go mad with all the pain that he, that Martian Rowe is causing. Mm-hmm. That is like such, so evil and so... It, it, you're right, it, it was he's a schemer. And, and that revelation... From, you know, the beginning of the book where Martian Rowe is just kind of this guy who seems to have a lot of pressure put on him uh, because he inherited all of this stuff from his dad. First of all, I, I love the connection between Martian Rowe and his father, Asgar Rowe, Asgar Rowe. I really like, first of all, Star Wars has always had the theme of, like, fatherhood. You know, that's that being, yeah. like, a big theme. So now to have the villain kind of have daddy issues is pretty interesting. Um and I love that Martian is not only just inheriting everything his dad gave him, but like expanding and he's way more, um, what's the word, ambitious than his father was. The rest of the Nihil say that, that like, oh, Martian is just the eye. Like, what, what is he doing here? He's, he's more than an eye now. He's, he's taking more power. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Jack mentioned what he does to Cassive and whatnot, but... Uh, capturing Loden was just half of his plan. He he literally essentially sent uh, a third of the Nihil to their death so that everyone yes. else would think the Nihil was defeated. And uh, just all yeah. all of this planning was just like amazing. Like I just want to Thrawn talk... level planning. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I want to talk about the uh, sending Kasav and his entire um, Tempest to their deaths. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about. I don't. So it's not explicitly explained in the book to a point where I really have like a good notion of what was going on. But the way I interpreted it, not only were they like hyperspacing into the shields of the capital ships and then crashing into them, but I felt like some of the smaller ships were hyperspace ramming. I felt like there were some holdo maneuvers in there or some form of, you know, hyperspace attacks, something that I know a lot of fans wanted kind of fleshed out more they wanted to actually see it now that it was introduced in The Last Jedi. You know, one of the major talking points was, why haven't we seen this before? Where is this? Uh, to think that maybe the Nihil start using hyperspace weaponry. Um, and that could be an explanation for why we haven't seen it since. You know? They probably I, are. I thought, an, an, I thought an alternate take as to why we don't see it as much as the hyperspace uh, tragedy itself. I mean, this disaster caused uh, pieces to be flung towards planets, not only through time, I mean space, but time. Uh, so, I mean, it seems horribly risky to use something as destructive as that. Like if you link hyperspace to physics, you have a one in a million shot of it, not creating a rupture that would cause pieces to be flung out to different spaces and times. That's true. Uh, that kind of made that line make a little bit more sense to me because now it's like, well, that would, that would be the most absolutely insane thing you could possibly do that's why we don't do that anymore yeah and who knows you know maybe the holder maneuver did have some chunks popping out in different uh places you know in the galaxy different places and times and stuff yeah who knows that would have been cool like just like thinking about it now it it definitely did another tiny connection to the sequels that they seem to be continuously making you know to kind of flesh out and connect everything together um but i really like your point jack about how, you know, hyperspace disasters seem to be, like, such a big prominent thing right now uh, with it still being, you know, relatively new technology that suddenly things like hyperspace ramming and hyperspace weaponry become taboo over time because they cause so much devastating destruction. 
Yeah. But I even saw like micro skipping happening, like the yes. same way that uh, Poe was trying to pull that. I feel like that is an unrefined form of the paths because you just Ooh. just skip into different spots and different planets like there's no control over it. You're just feeling your way through. At least Poe is because he's just God tier with uh, piloting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What do you guys think of uh, Lena So and how she handled this tragedy? You know, a political leader has to make a dangerous call about, you know, limiting traffic and everything. I think right. that it was a direct allegory to the year 2020. Um, I literally have like a few notes in my notes about how they talk about how they had to close the hyperlanes and planets have been under quarantine and the economic crisis huh. that might be afterwards and they have to send stimulus out there. And I'm like, oh my God. Hmm, must be and nice. then they talk about at the very end how Yoda goes to the Starlight Beacon like with like his um his like, youngling so they can see all of it. And they're like, oh, it's very surprising to see Yoda because he usually avoided non-essential social gatherings. That's right. literally <laughs> a phrase in this book. So yeah, I remember Charles that. Soul is literally just like, I'm going to stab into the story the fact that this was written in the year 2020 and what well, was supposed to be published in 2020 because we know books go through like a million revisions. Yoda was at the Citadel opening with the uh, Bernie Mittens on sitting there. <laughs> Here I am just for the ceremony. In the same robe he's had his entire life. Anyway. Yep. I believe that Lena So did as well of a job as she could have done. I think that she is a wonderful chancellor because she is trying to do the best for the entire Republic, not just think of it as like one thing. And it, it's very clear that she does like listen to her advisors and the other senators and she ponders everything before she makes that full decision. It's not just like she's in her like one decision and that's it. She's like, okay, well, yeah, let's see if we try this out and like, I'll delegate this to you. Can you do that? You better do that. And it, it works out well for her. Plus, like, she has, like, two cats with her the entire time. Like, that's, like... <laughs> Giant that's, cats. That's, like, uh, God, like... Like, that. that's that's God level of, like, okay, here I am with my Giant cats. lions. Giant lions by her side at all times. That's insane. I like... I liked the allegory between Palpatine and the Jedi Order pre... Like, just before the Clone Wars started versus Lena So meeting with the Jedi Order now. Um, you know, we saw a lot of the same arguments in the council about, is this the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Do we have a responsibility to be a force against these people? They're just as much civilians as the people that are, they're attacking. How do we handle this? Right. Yeah. I, I really liked that. Now that you mentioned the, the Jedi council section, it was one of the interludes. They only really address, they only have the Jedi council showcased once mm -hmm. in which, you know, first of all, Jorah Mali, who was supposed to run Starlight Beacon until her unfortunate passing, AJ. Um, <laughs> first of all, I love Jorah Mali, and I really can't wait to read more about her in Into the Dark, and I want her character to be fleshed out because I really like that character for the you know very small amount that we actually got of her. But I really liked that Jedi Temple, uh, the Jedi Council scene where they're kind of like discussing whether or not they want to take action against the Nile, whether they should. Jack, you know, you brought up some very good points where, you know, it's the same talking points, um, but it seems to be a different approach and a different attitude that kind of changes the outcome. They both decide to take action, but it's with, uh, you know, like a different outlook that uh, kind of showcases where 
the Jedi in the High Republic versus the Jedi in the prequels are. Yeah, it's like their main motivation for this uh, wasn't to like keep the peace and like quell these separatists who um, you know may have specific grievances that they're not getting answered in this bogged down Republic versus now where it's like these are outright aggressors. They're taking advantage of the people who are trying to move out and, you know, populate the outer rim, outer rim. And it makes sense for us to intervene in a way that at least helps minimize casualties. I think, yeah, that's perfect. That's a perfect way to describe it. What did you guys think of um, Elzar Mann's vision? Oh, man, that whole. Oh, yeah. First of all, that whole garden walk was so awkward. <laughs> it was. I love yeah. Avar Chris and Elzar Mann. I like you gotta they ship love them, each other but like it's like oh my god yeah. please guys I, just, I don't want to ship them because that's wrong but like kind of ah oh, darn but it how do i Avar do literally exactly. says, so we are jedi and i'm just like oh my god they love each other they oh my god they love yeah. each other like yeah. i i could tell like very early like, on like i i ah, they they love dancing each other with like, period, but they are jedi so they can't <laughs> Go dance with her. What all, are you doing? All Elzar wants to do is go have a drink and have a nice time. They're on Naboo earlier, and he's like, oh, this is really nice, like, vintage whatever. And then, like, they're on the Starlight Beacon. Let's have a drink. And Avar's like, oh, no, I'm supposed to be the one in charge over here. I'm going to do great, but what are we doing? And then he ends oh, up on the floor geez. with a bloody nose. That's what you get, Elzar. Yeah, so I the vision. I think that, oh, before we get to the vision, I was going to say, ah. I think... I know it's not allowed, but I think it's okay for Jedi to love because, like, Obi Wan did it, and he was like, he let that go because he was he did, yeah, you know, but he, he because he cared more about the order. Anakin didn't, and had no one to really talk to about it. Exactly. Uh, I think, yeah, if they had a support structure, and if it wasn't taboo, probably would have been okay. Yeah, and for them, it's it, the, the problem that they have with it. From what I understand, is attachment leads to vulnerabilities because then people can be used against you. Mm. Like uh, they're even worried about um, skier uh, Bell Bell Zedifar oh, yeah. and his uh, his charhound. Like that's technically too much of an attachment. Right. You can't even have a pet. Which yeah. comes with me? him to the Starlight Beacon. Like Bell literally brings Ember. Comes with in him. handy. Yeah. <laughs> All I can think of in my mind when you talk about that is uh, Tobey Maguire as Spider Man talking <laughs> on the phone to fake MJ. I can't. Because what if my enemies use it? Oh my god! I don't, don't <laughs> even get me started. With that. But anyways, um, but that showcases great power. <laughs> when Bell, Bell, and Ember, you know, they talk about specifically how the group on Elfrona brought um, brought Ember into the group as like a oh yeah she's just part of the she's just part of the crew you know she's th there's no attachment here she's just you know helping us with you know she's very crucial to the crew so she has to she's a part of us. And everyone in that Elfrona base loves Ember as well. Like, they yeah. all love Ember. There's, like, literally a point, like, uh, Indira, like, leaves on the speeders while they're, like, driving along, and Loden takes over driving, and Ember starts, like, whining because, you know, she's a dog. And so <laughs> Loden just, like, leans down while he's driving to, like, pat her head, and I'm like, oh, this is too precious. It showcases how, like, fast and loose with the rules these Jedi are. I have yeah. no question that Avar, Chris, and Elzar Man are going to act on their feelings at some point in the high republic I, it's going to be a problem know, the, for them at some point it's yeah. definitely obviously they're setting it up to be addressed again but i have no doubt that that's going to be a major point um of kind of conflict with them and i just want to also say before i forget <laughs> skier uh is also having trouble with jora molly's death because he mm, seems to yeah. he seemed to be really fancy on her she dies and apparently he's really struggling with that. Yeah, because he breaks down in the in the comic at the end of the first issue of the the High Republic comic. Yeah, he's like um, losing it after they night Kiev. He just like 
has a breakdown during the night, like that whole ceremony where they do the light of the Jedi. And there was also the Ithorian Jedi lost yes. um, his kind of quote unquote partner in crime. Yeah, so. Tayami. Yeah, and he was pretty devastated yeah. about that as well. I liked oh, Tayami. Yeah. I miss her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's me good. and you, man. We like Tayami. I liked her. <laughs> Tayami was really She's cool. A good pilot. So well, anyway, Elzar man's vision. Elzar man's vision. <laughs> so right. Back to back on time. I could be. I could be totally wrong here but when i read slash listened to the audiobook of the vision the first thing that came to mind was that he was envisioning order 66 and i know i know that's probably not right but just the fear and jedi running like i don't know if the nihil are gonna cause that but what do you guys think right well because you know he mentioned that they weren't retreating they were running away right they were actually legitimately scared but of course you know you say that it it could very well be Order 66. I actually kind of like that idea. Um, mm, but of course, they're all bathed in this sickening purple light, uh, he mentions. And of course, that purple light is whatever artifact that Martian Rowe is holding in front of Loden when he's oh. showcasing like the power that oh. he has with the relic with the twisted right. faces that oh, yeah, glows he purple. Knows how to deal with Jedi. And yeah, so he's like, you know, bring him on. I've got this purple thing, whatever it is. Uh, and of course, now Elzar Man is having a vision of all these terrified Jedi dying and being bathed in purple light. Tony Stark and Ultron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was getting Ultron visions yeah. from uh, hmm. when Wanda was making him freak out. <laughs> when he saw what Thanos was going to do to him. Oh yeah. Or Ultron. I, I love the Order 66 theory, but the fact that Matt just mentioned or reminded us about that... El- not Elzar. Martian Rowe has whatever this like stick type thing that I'm assuming is about the size of a lightsaber, but it's not. It's like some other thing that glows purple. We don't know what it is, but the fact that the purple light and everything, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. that's definitely whatever this is. I love the Order 66 theory, but now I'm like, oh, it makes more sense that it would be something that these Jedi directly have to face than something like 250 years in the future. <laughs> now, I don't know if Elzar Man's vision is going to be addressed, but of course, you know, he has a vision of the future, mm-hmm. and it seems like he's going to be taking it very seriously, and he's going to be approaching the Jedi, and we know that the Jedi of the prequel era don't, e- either they see visions as taboo, or they don't take them very seriously, like, obviously, Sifo-Dyas has a vision of the Clone Wars and has to go behind the Council's back to get the clone army, <laughs> and, you know... Anakin has visions of his mom and then Padme and they're all like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, you can't trust visions, period. He just, you can't. can't trust right. visions. <laughs> but the way visions are always... See, people always say that, you know, vis- the way when Jedi see the future, they have the power to really change that future. But that's never really what we see in Star Wars. When has it ever been that a, a vision that a Jedi has doesn't come true? It might not come true in the context that they have the vision, but it always comes true in one way or another. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. part of the classic idea of, of a, you know, the myth of, of any sort of prophecy. Um, you can only really change how it happens versus the actual outcome. Mm-hmm. Definitely goes in line with George's way of uh, storytelling. And they even use the word prophecy in um, oh, there's tons of prophecies, Elzar Man's though. vision. He's like, That's... oh, some prophecy. And I'm like, wait, what? which one? <laughs> Well, there's a million. So, I mean, that's all of like Dooku and Qui-Gon's like research and whatnot. And it's like, oh God, you guys yeah. are the prophecies again. <laughs> I just want to talk about two of the most unlikely heroes in all of the High Republic. And I know you know who I'm talking about. 
it's of course Joss and Pika. Yes, Joss and Pika. Adrian. Any better characters? Like I rooted for that couple. I'm like, man, they just deserve to go on vacation. Dude, they're doing what they love. I was so worried they were gonna die. (laughs) I was rooting for them so hard. They made it to the end. They were there at the ceremony. Go on your vacation, you two. You deserve it. Yeah. Did you listen to the audiobook, by the way? When I did, I loved his voice. Oh my goodness, this guy was like a A New New Yorker. New Yorker, like, hot dog vendor or something. It was like a combination of, like, Chicago and New York. Yeah, right? I was Come like, on, we gotta, we gotta get this thing, we gotta get this to ban the gas in. Yeah, we, <laughs> we gotta rescue these these guys. Dude, it was so good. Are you kidding me? I was, uh, I, every time I was just smiling so wide, every time they were on, on screen, I say, every time they were in a chapter. Yeah, I'm a sucker for these books because there's the, the production values always through the roof. Yeah, up. yeah. Oh, yeah, the audiobooks are phenomenal. Like, I mentioned it last week. Like, I love to actually read it through um, myself on my own. And then I'll listen to, like, sections of the audiobook. Like, usually AJ will do the audiobook. And still he'll be like, oh, you got to listen to this section. And so we'll listen to, like, just, like, chapters off and on. But, like, sometimes Mm. on occasion, like, I will just, like, listen to the audiobook first. Because, like, I still enjoy getting, like, that mental image and, like, that mental voice in my head of, okay, this is what I think that this person sounds like. Which is why I say Avar instead of avar and i'm like eh, right whatever <laughs> right yeah i mean you know minor pronunciations are no big deal uh but if you're not reading uh Pickett or the other guy what's his name joss joss, joss. joss if you're not reading joss's voice in an, in a new york accent you're doing it wrong exactly <laughs> um you can pronounce marcion marcion avar avar whatever but if you're not reading his voice in a new, in new york accent you're doing it wrong and you need to go back we had a pablo hidalgo reference Oh yeah, the Jedi architect Paolo Hidalgo or something like yeah. that. Like it was really <laughs> obvious. Jeez, oh, <laughs> just shoehorning that in there. Oh. I really liked Beriago's character as well. I was yeah. just about to say that you guys got to talk about um, uh, Beriaga Agaberry on the middle. Poor, yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Just like no one understands him. He's like, guys, guys, don't do it. No. I don't know what he's saying, but he seems real mad about it. No, I really, I really like that. And, you know, him comforting the kid and, like, you know, kind of just hopping from person to person during the part where they have all the stranded refugees on the... Was it the Starlight Beacon or was it the um, it was... Ataraxium? I think they were on uh, Avar Chris's uh, flagship where they were all, like, rescued, weren't they? Third Horizon? Right, Third Horizon. That's right. it. That's what it was. Oh, that reminds me. Um I really loved Avar Chris's method of being able to synchronize Jedi because it felt a lot mm. to me like um, battle, battle meditation, meditation yep. from Bastila Shan. Uh, and just seeing yeah. that back was great. Like she wasn't enhancing the, the different uh, troopers uh, like any anyone else piloting, but the fact that she was able to help all those Jedi coordinate and like be like that central connection between them all was really cool. I'm like, oh, 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 it's coming back. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um and who knows if, if that, you know, it hasn't been confirmed that that is battle meditation, but I can totally see that, of course, being kind of retconned or, or transitioned into battle meditation if they ever intro- reintroduce that into canon fully. That would be cool. It yeah. could easily be yeah. some, like, variation of it. Who are your guys, if you had to name your top three characters from the book? Um, can I go? I guess in can no order, but yeah. Bell, Loden, and Ember. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, Bell, Loden, and Elzar Man, actually. 
Yeah, okay. I like Elzar, man. I mentioned it earlier already that Bell and Loden are probably like the best like master apprentice relationship we're going to get. And Bell just seemed um super unique as a Padawan. And, like obviously we have like a very like headstrong Padawan no matter what, but I loved actually seeing him develop and like grow throughout the entire thing. Uh Loden as well, we kind of like see him grow as well, being like, Oh, I'm like a really confident teacher and I'm like good at what I do, but then towards the end we see him like knock down a few pegs and it's like, Oh god, I'm really worried about this guy. And then Elzar Man, we don't see him that much, but I just love his style. <laughs> like it's it's super ridiculous, but I just love his style. Yeah, he's like really suave. Like yeah. he always just has like that one thing that he's saying like the way he's read in the book too, again back to the audiobook. He he's just like really cool. He's got, like, this just kind of way of speaking that's, like, very, like, yeah. it's hard to explain. But, it, yeah, he's he's very in control, very cool. I'd say my top my top three characters here would be um, Martian Rowe is my favorite. Um, I seem to always just fall in love with the villain. And uh, I just thought Charles Soule did an unjo- uh, unreal job of coming up with the villain. Because I saw a quote from him uh, a few weeks ago, and he tried to, he was like, oh, I wanted to make someone, you know, that's, like, kind of iconic like vader or kylo ren or something but in his own way and i thought he really he nailed it with martian Rowe. and i think i mean he gets more eviler is eviler a word i don't know he gets more evil as the book goes on and i can't wait to see where he goes even further with his story and then two was bell zedifar to go along with jamie and all the reasons jamie loved him i agree mm-hmm. and three was porter Ingle, uh just because yes. of that nine egg stew and his ability with the saber yeah those are good picks for me, I would say um, I have to cheat a little bit because I feel like the combos are what make them uh, as interesting as they can be. Definitely, Loden and Bell were my favorite duo. Mm. Uh, I really, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed their dynamic. Like we've talked about, um, I just liked how Loden's like, "Listen, you're gonna do this," and I think you and I both know why. So let's stop, let's <laughs> cut to the chase, and uh, you do what I need you to do. And if you don't, you're gonna pay for it. That's gonna be your fault. Um, <laughs> Very much Qui Gon energy, he's, and I was there for it. He's a good dad. <laughs> yep, I I really enjoyed uh, Avar Chris. Everyone always said, "Oh, she's great, she's great," but there's a good reason for it. Uh, I really like the way she perceives the Force, and the idea of like using the hum of a lightsaber for more than just you know, right? I mm. like I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and I think because of the way she perceives it, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, finally, uh, Joss and Pika. Uh, I think Alex from Star Wars Explained really said it best. Like he has a really good way of making even the like minor minor characters seem very. Uh, you know, you connect with them very quickly. Like the the same thing with the farm family on Elfranda. Um, the way they were fighting for their life and coming up with all sorts of different ways to get the Nile back and to keep fighting for their way of survival and getting away from them was just really really. Um, intriguing and i was excited and like just as in, in, immersed in their story as i was you know elzar man and avar trying to figure out uh with the santecas on naboo what the heck's going on which by the way it was mm. really cool that they were using the same lake house as um as padme did right yeah really right. yeah yeah it was confirmed I mean, like, I saw, I saw, like, E.K. Johnson, like, tweet, like, literally today, like, that beginning of the chapter, and it was literally just, like, her, like, screaming as the text, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not sure what this means, but this must be a Padme thing, and so it, that's just super exciting that that's confirmed. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, like, waiting for him, like, is this the same one? <laughs> this is the one. So 
So for me, okay, you guys basically explained all of my favorite characters. You know, <laughs> yeah. I would probably, if I were to really be making a list, it would be Marcion Rowe, Avar Chris, and Loading Great Storm. With Bell Zedifar coming in like a close fourth, maybe tied for third with uh, Loden. But I guess I'll kind of take a different approach and I'll talk about some of the characters that I think have like some really cool potential. For like the two seconds that she's in the book, I absolutely love Jorah Mali. I can't stop talking about her. Uh, Togruta Jedi with a healed Kyber Crystal in her lightsaber. And I love the way she kind of convinces the council to take action against the Nihil. Uh, I love that kind of like almost playful adventure, adventurous spirit that she has where, you know, she's going to be taking control of the Starlight Beacon, but at the same time, she still wants to, you know, help people um, and she wants to get out there and still, you know, do things. So this was kind of like her last chance to like save the day or like help. And of course, she has to die in the Battle of Kerr. So that was quite sad. Um, obviously, she's going to play a bigger part in Into the Dark, I'm pretty sure. And her death is going to affect skier a lot so that she still has you know some kind of effect but i really want to see her explored more um and that goes also for indira stokes i really like her and bell zedifar's relationship now that she's bell's padawan or sorry jesus <laughs> now that she's bell's master uh while Loden is gone um because bell doesn't want to take the trials without Loden by his side so i'm interested to see how their kind of relationship changes i really liked their chemistry in the book uh, when they were on Elfrono, when they were fighting. I liked Indira uh, just doing her thing. Um, something that she, something that was mentioned was uh, that Jedi train to survive in space for longer, which again, it's another tiny little connection to the sequels. We have Force, force users being able to survive in the vacuum of space maybe just a little bit longer than normal people. Um, so she practices that when she jumps out of her, uh, when she jumps out of her, uh, what are they called? The vector. The vector. Vector. When she jumps out of her vector to save the um, family on the Nile ship. And let's see. I Okay, so I kind of like... What am I saying? My third favorite character is Webbub. Uh, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I was waiting for it. Webbub is just the best. Um, not only just the most amount of potential... Um, but he needs to come back at some point. Somebody, somebody later on in the High Republic needs to turn around and say, somehow, Webbub has returned. And, <laughs> you know, bring him full circle, for sure. But also, I would say Lorna D. I like Lorna D. Yeah. She's going to play a bigger role in the comics, I believe. Or at least she's on the cover, the variant cover of the next issue of the High Republic comics. So She reminds me of a more brash uh, Asajj Ventress. A little yeah. bit. I can see yeah. that. I can definitely so see listen. that. I'm only working with you because it's in my best interest too, hmm. and I'm only playing along because I know I'm stuck and I'm and that uh, you backed me into a corner. So good game on you, but uh, better watch your back. So I'm definitely interested to see where she goes. Uh, so those would be my three favorite characters with the most potential, and Webbub. Yeah, I like <laughs> Listed, that. like the entire book. <laughs> <laughs> Every character. Um. <laughs> I had a quick uh, honorable mention as a head of cassette, the pilot from the very beginning of the Legacy Run, because mm, yeah. she was set yeah, up. Touch up. Yeah, she was characterized so well from the very beginning, in which she was like, uh, I'm a veteran pilot. I can do like fantastic at her job. She makes her rounds around the entire ship, talks to the kids, and all the kids love her and whatnot. And she's like, Oh, you guys shouldn't be looking up porn. And they're like, Oh, no, you can see that. <laughs> like, yeah, right. It's just like, no, it's just so casual. But, um, and then she she tries her darn best because she is an awesome pilot. But I mean, you can't stop hyperspace. And like, 
Mm, what a death. Right. I, like immediately, and I'm just like, oh, what a loss. Ah. That goes back to um, Marcion Rowe's plan because the whole book, you're led to believe that it was an accident. You know, right. I was going to uh, yes, I was right. go off Lorna of D. Don't the Lorna I... D crosses in front of the sh- uh, legacy run by accident. Like it was cutting through and it didn't mean to. But in reality, he sent Lorna D out there to mess everything up, mm-hmm. to create a disaster. Don't think I forgot uh, our last Light of the Jedi episode when Matt thought it was just an accident. Yep. I thought it was just an accident. You thought it was just an accident. Matt thought <laughs> yeah. it was the Nihil by accident. And I thought it was the Nihil by on purpose. So yeah, I thought it was their game. I thought I thought it was part of the game plan from the from the start myself. Yeah, uh, it was. It was too I, I didn't know how, yeah. uh, but I was like, I just feel like they're just trying to poke poke at them, poke at the bear. Yeah, that was very very cool uh, revelation for sure. I like to think there are coincidences in the universe. I thought it could have just been an accident for the sake of an accident, but I guess you never not. Know. Yeah. <laughs> what well, helps explain why hyperspace lanes are a thing? Because I always. My understanding at first was that you're kind of like ripping a hole in time and space and then you pocket through kind of like slipstream in uh, the Halo universe. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it turns out you could physically smack into something and uh, those lanes are there for a reason. Well, that was kind of because um, they have some kind of weird hyperspace technology that isn't available. So I think normal hyperspace, you slip into oh, yeah, you can't, yeah. hyperspace, which is the alternate dimension where they travel you know, through the paths and whatnot. But, um, you know, some whatever crazy hyper green glowing hyperdrive engines that they have uh, kind of allows them to interact with things in hyperspace in a way that's not possible by conventional hyperspace things and doesn't seem to be the case afterwards. So whatever this technology is, it's either lost or like, you know, top men are cover are taking care of it. (laughs) Top Um, men. Top men. (laughs) But one more thing I want to mention, and that's Mari Santeca. just a very interesting character or very, you know, obviously some kind of force sensitive kind of thing. The sky, the Chiss Skywalkers um, are a good example of this, where the Chiss in the unknown regions use these force sensitive children who sense paths in the unknown regions um, to carve out, you know, territory and to carve out paths to different areas in the unknown regions safely. They use these children called Skywalkers which are basically just like the Chiss Force-sensitive people. They're literally called Skywalkers? They're literally called Skywalkers, yes. Poor choice of words, but oh well. <laughs> well, they're Sky Space Walkers. Um, space and so walkers. it seems that... It either seems that Mari Santeca has some kind of power that's analogous to that, or that humans can also be Skywalkers, and that could possibly be the you know origin of the name Skywalker. Um, but Mari Santeca seems to have some kind of force sensitive ability to sense hyperspace paths or something like um, that. She's a human wayfinder. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Overall, I mean, I thought this book was awesome and I thought it was a perfect foundation for the the higher public to build on. So absolutely. I don't give many things a 10 out of 10, but it's pretty darn close. So well done, Charles Soule. Yeah, I appreciated uh, like that everything didn't quite wrap up there's still plenty to to go from and uh i i'm interested to see where every one of these characters that have been introduced goes and i'm excited to see uh what's in store for them i got lots of wants i agree there's like i have a lot of questions still like my biggest question still is why did marciano Rowe want a jedi like what mm. on earth does he need a jedi for and i'm 
a little concerned. <laughs> it's one of the few books, especially Star Wars books, that I've read that <laughs> it's almost like been walking out of the movie theater with all these questions about what the next one's going to bring. So, I mean, that's obviously what they're aiming to do, and it's, it's an awesome feeling to have, even though we just want to know what happens. Yeah. The High Republic definitely has a lot of um, potential that is, you know, really exciting to explore. And I really love the idea that, for the most part, this series, this era in time is going to be covered by books. It's going to be supported by books. Novels are going to be their own, you know, mainline Star Wars stories, which I feel that hasn't really been done, you know, to the fullest extent that it used to be done, for instance. Uh, we're kind of going back to that, that idea that novels can finally carry canon just as much as, like, the movies and the television shows can. So, super excited. This felt like a movie in book form. Jack, do you have any questions of the week? Like, give me anything, like, anything related to Star Wars, obviously. What was your favorite part of season two of The Mandalorian? Jeez. Oh. Hmm. Cobb Vanth. My, the mithril saying, no railings? <laughs> <laughs> I would say the moment where the crate dragon bursts out of the top of the mountain when I realized oh my god, this show has the same special effects the movies do. do. Mm. The budget has been upped and it can finally, you know, it can finally hold its yeah. own alongside the movies just the same. That kind of blew me away. Uh, in, what an opener. Yeah. What a season opener. What about you, Jack? Gosh, you know, it's funny. You, you, you say something and then you don't think about what <laughs> yours is going to be. Um, I, I think for me, my favorite part had to be, um, and I'm stalling here by quite a large margin, <laughs> I'd have to say Bo-Katan mm. because mm. when Bo-Katan showed up, I was freaking out because it meant it's actually Katie Sackhoff. And that means, that, oh man, that means we might actually see Ahsoka in live. Oh my God. She said Ahsoka. Oh man. What the, oh, this is going to be, I can see how this could go bad real fast. And just watching all of those plot points start to come together after that was like, it made me even more excited for season two from that point on because I was like, okay, there's some crazy stuff I heard that could happen and I'm excited now. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, when Bo-Katan shows up, they, it was almost like the, every single rumor that we heard, they were like, no way. Was like, oh, wait. Yeah. You're right. It was like, holy crap. I loved her reveal because it was actually like a surprise. <laughs> because like we yeah. knew going into the season that she might show up and whatnot, but we didn't know when it was going to happen. And so the fact she showed up when she did, it was like, whoa. Because, like, the Ahsoka episode, we knew Ahsoka was going to show up because they really heavily promoted it, like, beforehand. And so it, that wasn't as big of a reveal, but the Bo-Katan one, whew, that, I was cheering. <laughs> it was fantastic. Ahsoka wasted no time showing up. That whole episode, that Kurosawa vibe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. And now we have a really quick word from Marcion Rowe. Uh, go ahead. Thank you for listening to the Holonet Marauders. Appreciate Jamie, AJ, and Matt for letting me join today and talk about the High Republic. You can listen to us more wherever you can get your podcasts. Uh, wow. Thank you. Anyway, thank you for listening to the show. You can follow us on Twitter at Holland Up Marauder. You can follow us on Instagram at Holland Up Marauders. You can check out our website, hollandupmarauders.com. And then you can also check out our Patreon if you guys are feeling like it. Just search for Holland Up Marauders. We'll see you guys next week. 